Our New Testament reading comes from the Gospel according to Luke chapter 20, uh, chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 38. After this wonderful story of Joseph forgiving his brothers and accepting them, taking care of them, here comes the Gospel according to Luke chapter, 20, uh, chapter 6, verses 27 through 38. To you who are ready for the truth, I say this. Love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond to the energies of prayer for, what, for that person. If someone slaps you in the face, stand there and take it. If someone grabs your shirt, gift wrap your, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. If someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit for tat stuff. Live generously. Here is a simple rule of thumb for behavior. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you, then grab the initiative and do it for them. If you only love the lovable, do you expect a pat on the back? Run of the mulsoners do that. If you only help those who help you, do you expect a medal? Garden variety sinners do that. If you only give for what you hope to get out of it, do you think that's charity? The stingiest of pawnbrokers does that. I tell you, love your enemies. Help and give without expecting a return. You'll never, I promise, regret it. Live out this God-created identity the way our Father lives toward us, generously and graciously. Even when we're at our worst, our Father is kind. You be kind. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. God of abundant mercy. You alone can turn evil into good, sorrow into rejoicing, and death into everlasting life. By your word, you provide all we need for salvation and for allness, for abundant life. Now draw us close in your spirit so that we may discover your will and live according to your purposes. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. To those of you who were looking and wondering where I were reading from, it is, of course, from the translation, the uh, version from Eugene Peterson, the message. So go home and read it again. It just puts things in a different light. But even with a wonderful reading, brothers and sisters, may I say that this is a tough passage to preach in normal circumstances, but even more so, after a week in which I've watched a recording of a meeting of this congregation, after I've been reading through angry emails with all kinds of demands that was written last year to the session, after I had text messages with accusations and listened to stories of everything that happened in Mount Pleasant, in this Presbyterian church during the past two years. And I have a suspicion I did not hear everything yet. But I have heard our sisters and brothers were injured and, and I've seen anger and I've seen tears and sadness. 
And often in the quiet of the night, I wonder what happened. Where did we lose it? Where did we forget the promises that we make to take care of a family and a young boy to help them raise him as a child of God? Where did we lose it when we promised to be God's people in this world? People who have been called to be a place where the body of Christ can be seen. Often I wipe off tears thinking of the hurting insult that we as members of this congregation may be thinking of ourselves sometimes as followers of Jesus, but we hold at each other. Now this passage we read this morning as assigned by the Reformed Common Lectionary begins, begins with a reminder from Jesus that this word is for those who are ready to listen. These words are not for everyone. These words are, you remember last Sunday, the 12 disciples that were elected and chosen and called by Jesus at the beginning of chapter 6 of Luke. They were gathered around him in the level places, but it, these words were also meant for the people who gathered in this level place where Jesus healed them and spoke to them and spoke the Beatitudes, the four blessings and the four woes I spoke about last week. These words are for the church of every time and of every place. And they are not meant to be just nice to listen to. At the end of this chapter, Jesus reminds us that the teachings are fulfilled only when we change and when we act on what we have heard. You see, the thing about Christian religion is it's not a list of rules that you have to follow. But it's about being changed. It's about a change that happens in you once you discover the love of God in Jesus Christ. In what Dan has called the joy that's deep inside of us. But it's also a tough passage to preach since there are more than one sermon in this passage and I will not preach all three or four of them today. You see, I just mentioned it because the risk is high that tomorrow I will get email from someone asking about a Christian way to respond in situations of domestic abuse and whether you are supposed to be a floor mat your whole life. Or someone may ask me about our response in the face of war like in the Russia and Ukraine situation right now. Maybe Jesus taught us the way of passive resistance in this passage. Who knows? I think Christian ethics addresses these issues. But what we read this morning is a continuation of the instruction that Jesus gave to his disciples, gave to his church, saying, how will people know that we are disciples of the Christ? How will people see what kind of difference Jesus makes in the real everyday life of people who nowadays calls themselves Christians? I mean, brothers and sisters, if we make no difference and if we live like everybody else and if we treat each other like people who have never heard the gospel, what good is our faith then? 
That is what James talked about in his letter. You see, it is when we start to live the way of Jesus that it continues to demonstrate that Jesus did bring God's reign into every contested area of our lives. Brought God's reign and God's kingdom into our very lives and into our relationships with each other and with the world and with creation. But especially to brothers and sisters in Jesus the Christ. And it is when we start to live differently that it may seem odd and gullible to other people. But God's saving way was enacted by Jesus who now declared that this should be the divine standard and the method of mercy and the way that God's people in the world should live. This is authoritative for the behavior of his followers, dear brothers and sisters. And yet we know that we don't often like all people. And we know that some people make it especially difficult to like them because of the way that they behave. Or sometimes we perceive them to try to hold power and that they try to, to guard the, the ways that we have always done things. And maybe they behaved in a way that disturbed our congregational thinking and our congregational experience in life. And we got angry. And we ra rationalize it because it is their behavior which strengthens our dislike. It is true that we often cannot take what other people stand for. Whether it be the politics, and we know all about the divisive politics in this country. We don't like the way that they behave and the way which they have behaved in and who has caused a beloved pastor to leave or a hated pastor to leave, depending where you were. We know the reality of our life together. But Jesus, when he uses the verb for love, which has nothing to do with romantic love or like or even friendship, wants to talk to every one of us. Whether you were part of the history or whether you may hopefully not become part of a future history. But he, uh, Jesus uses this verb and it has nothing to do with romantic love. It doesn't have to do with friendship or even to, with like someone. The imperative, brothers and sisters, which Jesus uses when he commands his disciples to love, agapate, is related to the meanings of a word in the Old Testament. That describes how God is experienced by those included in the covenant. Do you remember the covenant? The unbreakable bond between God and God's people, which God affirmed in a covenant made with Abraham and Sarah. And that covenant said, I will be your God and you will be my people and your descendants will be my people and I will be their God. Covenant which relates, uh, which governs God's relationship to the people of God. It is a word that's translated in the Old Testament with steadfast, loving kindness, faithfulness and trustworthiness. Despite how the people responded. So when Jesus says you should love each other, agapate, it's the covenant word 
which use, uh, Jesus uses when he talks to disciples about their relationship to one another. What Jesus requests from his disciples is practical unselfishness and generosity. The unconditional desire for the well-being of all people, even your enemies, even those people you disagree with, the people that cause you to dislike them. This is a life with no hesitation, where nothing is held back and costs and benefits. Uh, what's in it for me is never calculated. And where nothing in return, no payoffs, no goodwill is expected. The love that we are demanded to have, invited into, is a wish for the well-being of people for their own good. And this instruction, love your enemies, is given twice in our reading, verse 27 and in verse 35. Love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. Peterson interpreted. When someone gives you our time, respond with the energies of prayer for that person. Or in the NRSV translation, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. These are instructions not to work out retaliation and revenge. And we are so good for that. I mean, our whole justice system is based on retaliation and revenge. But followers of Jesus don't hate. And they don't despise. And they don't write off people because of their behavior. There is, brothers and sisters, no room for hatred in the life of a follower of Jesus. And I know it's not easy. I know exactly what you think. It's not easy, not even for me. But Jesus is not leading his followers into a fantasy world that this will be easy. He warned his disciples that they will be aided. And even if people behave like you would expect enemies to behave, slap you in the face, grab your clothes, take away your goods with even the begging or unfair advantage thrown there by Peterson, we should be different. Or as paraphrased, use the occasion to practice, uh, practice servant life. No more tit for tat stuff. Live generously. And then with a second, but love your enemies, Jesus drives this point home that his followers do not retaliate or take revenge. That they do not bear grudges and, and do not hate anyone. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. And of course I know Christians do not expect rewards, do we? Maybe we do. Maybe we should just stop romanticizing why we make decisions. We are always acting on our own interest. But Jesus tries, brothers and sisters, to persuade us that it is better for us to merge our interest 
with God's interest and with other people's interest. We must live in love and show compassion. Because when we do this, it unites us in a common life where there is room for everyone and cuts nobody out. There's room for everyone even if they disagree with us. Because disagreement is not conflict. Diversity is good for the body of Jesus Christ. Where there is not a demand for anyone to resign from service and leave the congregation. Like I've read so many. And we can of course continue to deceive ourselves by persuading ourselves that they don't belong because they don't or didn't behave like we do. The thing is that when Jesus talks to his disciples, he says, go and baptize the people and then teach them. People belong to us and then we teach them how to be Christian by the way that we live and treat each other. We can never believe that anyone who differs or disagrees from us is our enemy. But even when people disagree with us, brothers and sisters, then we are called to authentic discipleship by even treating our enemies with undeserved kindness or in the examples Jesus gave, do good and pray for and, and bless enemies and people we dislike as if we were all children of God. When I interviewed, I asked the, the search team, what went wrong in Mount Pleasant? Maybe you can answer the question because you are part of this congregation. Maybe you don't want to talk about it and it is good because it's still painful. I've heard about people who, who said they will not return to worship with us in person because it's too hurtful when they show up. Megan McKenna posted a story online with the title, The Messiah is One of Us. I want to read it to you. Once upon a time, there was a wise abbot of a monastery who was the friend of an equally wise rabbi. This was in the old country long ago, when times were always hard. But just then, they were even worse. The abbot's community was dwindling, and the faith life of the monks was fearful, weak, and anxious. So the abbot went to his friend and wept. His friend, the rabbi, comforted him and said, there is something you need to know, my brother. We have long known in the Jewish community that the Messiah is one of you. What? exclaimed the abbot. The Messiah is one of us. How can this be? But the rabbi insisted that it was so, and the abbot went back to his monastery, wandering and praying comforted and excited. Once back in the monastery, he would pass by a monk and wonder if he was the one. Sitting in the chapel praying, he would hear a voice and look intently at the face and wonder, is he the one? The abbot had always been kind, but now began to treat all of his brothers with profound kindness and awe, even deeper respect, even reverence. Soon everyone noticed 
One of, one of the other brothers came to him and asked him what had happened to him. After some coaxing, the abbot told him what the rabbi had said. Soon the other monk was looking at his brother, brothers differently with deep respect and wondering and treated him differently. Word spread quickly, the Messiah is one of us. From the day on the mood in the monastery changed, Joseph and Ivan started talking again, neither wanting to be guilty of slating the Messiah. Peer and Naibu left behind the frosty anger and sought each other's forgiveness. The monks began serving each other, looking out for opportunities to assist, seeking healing and forgiveness where offense had been given. The monastery was suddenly full of life and worship and love and grace. The prayer life was rich and passionate, devoted, and services were alive and vibrant. Soon the surrounding villagers came to the services, listening and watching intently. Many joined the community of monks. And when they took their oaths, their vows, they were told the mystery. The truth that their life was based upon the source of their strength, the richness of their life together. The Messiah is one of us. The monastery grew and expanded into house after house. And the monks grew in wisdom and in grace before each other and in the eyes of God. And they say still that if you stumble across this place where there is life and hope and kindness and graciousness, that the secret is the same. The Messiah is one of us. Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us. We must hear, brothers and sisters, a call of Jesus to every one of us today. Doesn't matter where we find ourselves. Doesn't matter how we relate to each other. Doesn't matter what happened in the past. But Jesus calls us to live our lives with an alternative vision of reality. To live our lives as lives that reverse the values of this culture. Jesus calls us to love our enemies and to love our brothers and sisters and to be merciful even as God is merciful. And us, our lives are nourished with and sustained by his love and his mercy and his grace. We have been empowered with grace to live a new kind of life in relationship to our enemies and our brothers and sisters. Also at Mount Pleasant Presbyterian Church to be authentic disciples. And I guess somewhere we will start visiting and reach out and apologize and start anew to love and to accept back. Amen.